Today's scripture reading is uh, taken from Isaiah chapter 54. I'll be reading from verse 5 uh, through verse 17 to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the wet waters of Noah should no more over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall, be not be re shall not be removed, <clears throat> says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimonium, antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have, no, I have also created the uh, re revenger to destroy on weapons that, on, <coughs> excuse me, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servant, servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This is the word of God.
Open your scriptures now to James chapter 4. Our text will be James 4, verses 1 through 10. And I've titled this sermon, The the Peril and Power of Passion. I told the kids um, in in the assembly that it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, But it, it, I think, describes the, the two opposing sides, ideas that we see here in this this passage. Um, We we see passion, the the two sides of passion. It it can be a bad thing. It can be perilous to us. It can be destructive and deadly. But it also has has power. A different kind of passion has power. It has potential to strengthen us, to grow us into the likeness of God. And I think the call of this passage is to lay down hatred and to embrace humility. God is calling us to forsake our self-serving passions and to pursue with passion the things of God. So as we study this, may the Spirit of God reveal where this is needed in your life. Let's read James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the first Sunday of 2018, and as I considered that, I I never was big on New Year's resolutions. If you're going to make a resolution about losing weight, I suggest you start that around Thanksgiving and keep it in front of you every day until the New Year. And you might as well start going to the gym and working out about the same time, too. It's not that resolutions are a bad thing, but if it's worth doing, you might as well start doing it now. But I think the new year can be a good time for us to reflect and evaluate, a time to reflect on the experiences of the past year and and to consider how God's grace has been made available to us in our times of need and a time to consider the the personal growth that we may have experienced. And so while I didn't necessarily choose this passage as a new year sermon, maybe one thing that we can consider is what what do we care about? What, What do we 
care about as we look into this new year? What are the things that we want to pursue? What are you passionate about? And how have the things that you're passionate about changed over the past year? Do you care about the same things that you did a year ago? Do you care about them differently than you did then? Are the things that you really care about worth dying for? Are you caring about the right things? Are your passions perilous? Or are they powerless? Or are they powerful? That the two passions in view in this passage are humility and hatred. Now, you may not think of yourself as a hateful person, and I won't ask for a raise of hands for those who are humble. But as we think about the new year, perhaps we should make James 4, verses 7 and 8 our motto. James had just written a chapter or section in chapter 3 that we looked at last time on the power of the tongue and the destructive power of the tongue how we bless God and we curse people, or how a small spark from the tongue can set ablaze an entire forest. But then he also talked about how the meekness of wisdom can be a means of sowing peace through our conduct, whether that's our speech or our attitudes or in our gentleness with others. And so he argues that that our tongues don't have to be destructive. He acknowledges that the potential of our tongues for making peace. You can sow peace and you can make peace with the wisdom from above, he says. And so here in chapter 4, James once again warns us about the peril of passion, how the things that we care about can cause fights and quarrels and wars and murders. But he talks about the, the flip side, the antidote to these fights and quarrels is humility and seeking after God. You know, it, it's hard for a person who is humble to fight and quarrel because the things that he cares most about are the things that God ultimately has, his, has in his control. And so he doesn't need to make it his, his thing to control and to fight about. And you'll notice as, as you read through this letter, James calls his audience my brothers. He, he's, he's addressing fellow Christians, people who have, who have accepted the implanted word of Christ. And even in, in rebuke, he, he's called them brothers. In chapter 2, 5, he says, my beloved brothers. And then he goes on to, to reprove them for dishonoring the poor. And then in chapter 3, he, he talked of, of blessing and cursing coming from the same mouth. And he says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. But here in this section, he he speaks to them more directly, and he calls them, you adulterous people. He's not changing his audience here in this chapter, but I I think it's evidence that his, his brothers have some serious relational issues that they need to work on. And that's evident here in, in verse 1. The, the language that he uses is, is pretty terse. He, he doesn't use verbs in verse 1. So a literal translation is something like, from where quarrels and from where fights among you. And then he, he goes on to say, it's because of your, your passions, your pleasures, the things that you're pursuing, the things you care about, or at war within you. 
So, so he's saying that, that different people in this church care about different things, and they're fighting about it. And as I observed, I think unless you're living under a rock somewhere, and I wouldn't recommend it at this time of the year, you, you probably know that these kinds of problems aren't confined to people in James's time. And I think some people have this idealistic image of the early church. They think that, that everything was done correctly and that people got along because they were led by the apostles who had learned from Jesus himself. But I think what we see here in the early church is that it was made up of men and women who were much like ourselves, people who were sinful, people who loved themselves more than their neighbors, people who got into fights about small things while neglecting the big things. But even in this, God wasn't surprised. God sees the big picture, and he had been accomplishing his plan and fulfilling his promise over the past several thousand years by working with people who were pretty messed up. And it was through the, the imperfect saints of the early church that the testimony of Christ was spread throughout the known world. And God has continued to establish and protect his church for the last 2,000 years. But James here has to address the problems that are present. This direct language that he uses suggests he's not just asking a rhetorical question or engaging in some theoretical discussion about conflict. He's confronting a real problem that exists here in this church. And as you know, the audience here was a Jewish audience, and the Jews in that time were pretty passionate people. They cared a lot about the things they cared about that they had this uneasy relationship with the Roman Empire, and that they were allowed to, to worship according to their religion, but they still resented the, the Roman rule over them. And so there were political zealots who, who sought to overthrow this, this Roman rule and, and rebel against the Roman empower, Empire. But there were also religious zealots who were fanatical about they're preserving their religion, and they opposed this new Christian movement. And so they opposed it with violence and with persecution. So when these people became followers of Christ, their old habits and patterns of life didn't necessarily change overnight. There were probably some former zealots in this church as well. And so he's addressing a people that are pretty passionate in that might be opinionated. And so James answers his own question here, from where quarrels and fights? But notice how he answers. He, he answers the question by posing a second question. Is it not this? And I think that that's an interesting way for him to confront this problem. He, he asks questions. Instead of just attacking in, in a, a direct accusatory way, he, he asks questions, and I think that might be healthy for us to consider. Sometimes, in, in the heat of disagreement, asking a question can get us both thinking in the same direction for the answers. And granted, James here is, is writing a letter, so, so his readers can't answer his question. So he answers it himself. He says that they fight because their passions or pleasures or desires are at war, within their members. A literal translation says, verse 2 says, not thence 
out of your passions that are as soldiers in your members. In other words, th these, these fightings and quarrels come from your passions, and, and they're described as soldiers in your members. So there's this idea that, that our passions or our desires are soldiers. They're, they're doing battle. And it, it's th these competing desires that are causing the conflict. It's causing conflict within the members that the King James calls, uses the word members, and a few other translations do too. It's not entirely clear what he's referring to as members. Is that the competing desires within a person's heart, or is it the competing members within the church? I like to think of it as, as the members within the church, because Paul talks about the church as being composed of individual members under one head. And he talks about this in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, just as a, a physical body functions together as a unit, so that the church as the body of Christ also operates as a unit under the authority of Christ. And, and so I talked to the, the children in the assembly this morning about Paul's illustration here, that, that we have a, a body has different members, like the, the ears and the hands and the eyes. And if, he says if the whole body was an eye, we would have no sense of hearing. Or if the whole body was an ear, we would have no sense of smell. And so I asked the children, if, if you could choose, which member would you be? If you could only be one organ, what would you choose to be? You know, if we were all giant noses walking around, we, we couldn't um, hear each other. And, and, of course, we couldn't speak to each other either because we didn't have a mouth. And, and so, you know, it, it gets a little, a little silly thinking about it like that. And so, of course, it makes sense that, that we have different organs. We, we have a mouth to speak with and, and ears to hear people um, speaking to us and, and eyes and, and all of those things. And, and all of these members work together. We're, we're able to, to get food into our mouth when we need to eat and, and not into our ears. And, and we avoid poking ourselves in the eye with our fork, even, even though it's you know, pretty sharp. And so we, we kind of learn how to take care of ourselves. Well, wouldn't it make sense that, that the body of Christ, that the members of Christ would also take care of each other in the same way? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so I think this, this illustration of the body is a powerful one. It helps us understand God's purpose in, in putting together the church. The church is composed of different members, and not everybody has the same function. But we all need each other, and no one can say to the other, I really don't need you. But as, as the different parts work together and, and work in the place that God has made for them, that they, they fulfill the purpose that God has given to them. They don't try to be something they're not. They, they don't try to be another organ that has more power. And, and Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 that the purpose of the church is that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the church isn't just a place that, that makes us feel good or a buffet that, that we kind of pick and choose what we want, but it's a place that, that we have a higher purpose than just meeting our needs. We have a spiritual purpose to declare God's wisdom to the heavenly powers. 
So, so coming back to, to James here, in, in, in that context, in that understanding of the church and, and of the members working together, it, it's, it's easier to understand why he's so upset about these wars and fightings in the church. If there's one theme that, that he continues to harp on through this letter, it's this idea that a living faith will transform us, and it will transform us specifically in the way that we relate to each other. He says that the royal law, or the law of King Jesus, from chapter 2, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But he spends a lot of this letter appealing to them to forsake their unloving ways of relating to each other. They were discriminating based on superficial differences. They were using their, their tongues harshly. They were being arrogant. They were mistreating the poor and the vulnerable. And I think here in chapter 4, he kind of drills down to the heart of the problem, and it's that their passions are at war. The things they want are in conflict with each other. And so he says this twice in verse 2. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Then he repeats, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So there's this thing you want, and you can't have it, and, and your desires are frustrated in, in not getting what you want. He's not necessarily saying that the things that they want are bad things. It's just the fact that you can't get what you want causes this frustration. And I think that the response to frustrated desires shows us where our trust really was all along. Desire can, can be a good thing. It, it, it motivates us to do things. We, we want to live in a warm house, so we work to pay the heating bill, and we might need to work overtime sometimes. Or we want our children to be obedient, so we, we give them consequences for obeying. We, we train them to be obedient and, and to listen, because we want them to grow up to be respectable people. So if, if we want certain things, then we do certain things to make that happen. But sometimes the things that we want compete with what someone else wants. And so what, what do we do when that happens? Or what do we do when the things that we hope for just don't turn out that way and it doesn't seem like there's a chance that, that it'll ever happen the way that we want it to? Not necessarily that these are, are bad things that you want, but what do you do when you can't have what you want? What is your response? The text here suggests that, that there may have been an actual murder over frustrated desires, and commentators have different opinions on whether James is referring to, to someone that actually died, or, or whether it's a symbolic use of the word, or perhaps a, a reference to some of the zealots and, and the, the previous life um, that they may have lived. First John 3 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So sacrificial love is the answer to frustrated desires. When we care more about getting what we want instead of caring about our brother, it's when we'll have fights and quarrels. So he says here that the person who's driven by his own passions will live a life of conflict with others. Ultimately, this is because he's not living by God's design. And then he goes on to say that sometimes they don't get what they want because they never asked for it. 
Or sometimes they, they ask for it and, and they don't get it because they ask for it selfishly, to squander it on their own passions. And, and this is where he, he kind of really drops the hammer on these people. He calls them adulterous people or, or friends of the world. And I think this, this accusation is, is connected to, to the previous discussion, that, that this fascination with their own desires, their infatuation with getting what they want, and their inability to live peaceably with their brothers is being a friend of the world. And this is similar to what he said back in, in chapter 1, verse 26, when he said, if you think that you're religious and you, you don't control your tongue, then your religion is worthless. And in the same way here, if, if you're not able to live peaceably with your brothers, if, you're, if your pursuit of your own passions causes fights and quarrels, you're being a friend of the world. You're not pursuing the things of God. So the, the, the peril of passion or the, the danger of misplaced desire is when our passions conflict with the law of love. What, what you want may or may not be wrong in itself, but it must be judged by the law of love. How, how does your pursuit of what you want affect your brother? And are you willing to make yourself an enemy of God just to get what you want? Our passion and our pride if it is left unchecked, will ultimately destroy us, and it hinders the testimony of the church. But James doesn't stop here. And just like the previous chapter, after outlining the, the, the grievous nature of their sin, he, he presents some solution to the problem. And the solution here to the, the peril of passion is the power of a different kind of passion. He doesn't say that the solution is to stop caring about things or to stop desiring things or to stop longing for things. But the call here, I believe, is to reorient our passions. And we talked about this again back in chapter 1. He's repeating some of these themes throughout his book. When he talked about temptation to sin, he said, each person is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so the answer to temptation that we talked about isn't just learning to say no more forcefully to our desires, but, but to change our desires through the new birth in Christ. And it, it's through the life of Christ in us, that the living word in us, that we experience transformation, that, that new life comes where there once was death, and love comes where there was indifference. And so this reorientation here that James is calling us to it in chapter 4 is a transformation from pride to humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if you look at this um, pride versus humility in light of, of verses 1 through 3, you can imagine a proud, arrogant person in verses 1 through 3, and, and you kind of expect them to, to relate to other people in this way, that they fight and quarrel if they don't get what they want. But picture a, a humble, meek person, a godly person in the same situation. It, it doesn't fit. A, a humble person doesn't hold that tightly to the things that they want, that they fight and quarrel over it if those things are threatened. You don't take it personally when your desires are frustrated because a humble person knows that God will ultimately meet his needs, even if it is different from what you imagined. That's not to say that, that a humble person has no desires, 
It doesn't mean he has no opinions on how things should be. But, but he holds what he wants always secondary to what God wants. And his greatest passion is not his own desires, but God's desires. But even when those desires aren't met, he, he can still live in peace and love with others because he knows that it was never ultimately up to him to make it happen. He trusts the outcomes, not to systems that fail or to people who sin, but to God himself. Pride, on the other hand, is a dangerous trait to have. It says God opposes the proud. A proud person doesn't appreciate grace because he never sees his need of it. He stands confidently before God because of his own works, not because he has received God's grace. And Jesus talks about a proud Pharisee in Luke 18. He talks about this Pharisee that that comes into the temple and and stands before others and and prays publicly, God, I thank you that I am not like other men who are extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And the tax collector who who was already looked down on because of his association with the Roman Empire, he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And the story is, is told of a lady that met Charles Spurgeon one day, and and she said, I I pray for you every day that you may be kept humble. And she was such a a wonderfully fine-looking woman and splendidly dressed, and and Spurgeon replied, thank you very much, but you remind me of a failure in my duty. I have never prayed for you that you might be kept humble. Dear sir, she cried, there is no need for such prayers, for I am not tempted to be proud. So Spurgeon observed how proud she was, to have achieved such a delusion. So humility is this, this tricky thing. It's something we should pray for, but, but never thank God for. It, it's an essential quality for the Christian life. James kind of gives us a, a series of, of rapid-fire commands in, in these, these verses. Depending how you count them, there's about ten different um, imperatives that, that he gives you. But, but this isn't a, a simple 10-step plan to humility. It, it's more a, a description of the kinds of things that a humble person will do. As we experience God's grace, we'll respond to it. We submit to his grace that he offers to us. We, we yield ourselves, and we acknowledge God's authority over us. We resist the devil. We resist the, the allures, the temptations that the devil offers. We re- resist the work of the devil in the world. And Ephesians 6 describes the armor of of spiritual warfare, the armor of resisting the devil. We resist, he says, with with truth and righteousness, the gospel of peace, with salvation and the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit. But perhaps the only thing better than the devil fleeing from us is God drawing near to us. And so that should be our position. We're, We're drawing near to God while resisting the attacks of the devil. And it's these weapons of warfare against the devil, righteousness, peace, the word of God, and prayer 
are also things that, that bring us closer to God as we learn about him through the word and prayer and, and live like him in relationship to those around us. He instructs us to be clean on the inside and on the outside. He instructs the sinners to cleanse their hands, which, which is the, the visible outer sins that we commit. But he instructs that the double-minded to purify their hearts. And, and I think this is referring to the, the competing desires of the hearts. So we're made new in Christ. Well, as we, we become more like Christ, we'll have a single focus of our heart instead of the, this frenzied pursuit of multiple attractions that take away from Christ. And then verse 9 describes that the position of the humble person who realizes his sin. James isn't saying here that, that a, a Christian life should not be one of joy, but the Bible speaks of the attitude that we should have towards our sins as one of mourning and repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So if we have a proper view of the depth of our sin and an understanding of God's holiness, we will experience sorrow over our sin. And if we don't sorrow over our sin, if our sin causes us no grief, then we have probably not understood the depth of our sin or the height of God's grace. So if our passion is for Christ, if we care about the things of Christ, we will experience the power of humility. But if our passions are rooted within ourselves, we will experience the peril of hatred. Christ is our example in humility. He did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, as it says in Philippians 2, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. And so we, says Paul, should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others better than ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but looking to the interests of others. So as we be begin this new year, consider what you care about. Are you pursuing your own passions? Are you fighting and quarreling over frustrated desires? Or are you developing greater humility? Are you drawing nearer to God in mourning over your sin? Are you willing to pray for more humility? And are you willing to resist the devil's temptations to defend your own interests? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's have a song.